The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Merry Christmas. It's so good to be with you. It's a joy and a privilege to be with you this morning and have the privilege of sharing God's word with you this morning on Christmas Eve morning. Christmas is one of my favorite times of the year. So many wonderful memories I have had throughout my childhood and growing up with my younger brother and my mom and my dad and just full of just so much joy and laughter and fun together. Uh, over the past several years, we've been living in California. My parents have made the trip down to see us every Christmas. And actually this year, my parents were not planning on coming uh, to visit us for just different reasons. But over the course of the past few months, my eldest daughter, Sienna, was writing notes to her grandma, my mom, and writing things like, the thing I look forward most, grandma, is when I get a note from you. And I can't wait to see you soon. And she kept writing these notes back and forth these letters to my mom, her grandma, and finally my mom's like, okay, fine, we're coming, we're here. So mom and dad, I'm really glad that you're here this morning. 
And maybe, you know, like myself, you have a family member here, a guest, or you yourself are a guest amongst us this morning, and maybe you're wondering why in the world are they preaching Revelation 12 <laughs> with a room full of guests this morning. So hang in with me. Uh, the Apostle John more than likely is the one who wrote the book of Revelation in his latter years. He's a pastor who loves and cares for a group of seven churches in ancient Turkey. And his goal as he is writing the book of Revelation is to bring pastoral comfort and hope to God's people. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John uses images and symbols. He writes in what's called an apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic genre. It's not something we're often familiar with. We're more familiar with things like narrative or poetry, or we just finished the book of Philippians, like prose and discourse and things like that. But the apocalyptic genre, apocalyptic literature, was something very common to people in John's day, especially for God's people. And the goal of apocalyptic genre is not to just create a whole bunch of scary images and to create fearful speculation about the future, but in particular for the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, again, is to bring hope and comfort for God's people. The word revelation in Greek is the word apocalypse. It's where we get that idea of apocalypse from. Now, when you hear me say the word apocalypse, what comes to your mind? Scary movies, the end of the world, Armageddon, right? Which is a great movie, by the way. One of my favorites. But in the Bible, apocalypse or revelation is, is not a scary end of the world type word at all. In fact, apocalypses or revelations appear quite frequently throughout scripture. One example, just to start us off, in Galatians chapter one, Paul writes about his own experience of becoming a Christian and receiving the gospel. He writes, Galatians one, for I did not receive it, the gospel, from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation, an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. See, Paul is saying that as he became a Christian, as he encountered the risen Jesus, there was this unveiling, this pulling back the curtain, if you will, where Paul had this fresh, new encounter with the person of Jesus. And that is, again, the goal of the book of Revelation, to unveil, to reveal in all his fullness and all his beauty and all his glory the person and work of Jesus. And in doing so, to bring hope and comfort to God's people. Revelation reveals the love of God in the person of Jesus. So with that in mind, I want us to look at this little paragraph here in Revelation 12 under kind of two main sections. Number one, what these characters reveal. And number two, what the conflict reveals. What the characters reveal, and then followed by what the conflict reveals. So number one, what the characters reveal. In Revelation 12, there's three main characters that we come across. First, a woman. Take a look at verse 1 with me. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Notice, John tells us that this woman is, quote, a sign. Right? Now, what does a sign do? What's the purpose of a sign? Like, if you're going down I-80 headed to Lincoln, you see a sign for Lincoln, you know that that sign is not Lincoln itself, but that sign is pointing you toward that reality which you're about to get to. And it's very similarly, a sign is something that points beyond itself to something that is even more real. 
So whoever or whatever this woman is, she is a sign or a symbol meant to point to something greater. Notice John says that she is clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, kids, try drawing that this Christmas, right? And actually, D.A. Carson, he says something brilliant about the book of Revelation. He says, you can't actually paint the symbols of Revelation without looking silly. So there's something more going on here. One of the key kind of principles or key tools in understanding the book of Revelation I have found helpful is someone much smarter than me said this, and I can't actually remember who said this, so if someone finds it someday and let me know who said this. But this principle, will put it on the screen, there's nothing said in the book of Revelation that hasn't been said somewhere else in the Bible. There's nothing said in Revelation that hasn't been said somewhere else in the Bible. So with that in mind, think about it like this. In Genesis 37, Joseph shares a dream with his brothers where the sun, the moon, and the stars all bow down before him. And who does the sun, the moon, and the stars, who do they represent in that dream? Well, the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. So on one level, we can say that this image of, of the woman with, with, the, with the, the, the crown and the, and the moon under her feet is Israel. In fact, as the, the passage continues in verse 2, John writes, she's pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs and in agony of giving birth. And actually, this image of a woman giving birth, kind of hang with me here, is actually found also in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah and other places as well. Isaiah 26 As a pregnant woman approaches her time to give birth, thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed in labor. This image of this woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars, this image, this symbol, this sign of a woman giving birth, in pains of giving birth, in many ways, echoes so many Old Testament passages of Israel being described as as a woman in labor, going through difficulty and pain, and out the other side, God's promises would always end with this note of hope and consolation. And at the same time, I would argue this woman, in a sense, represents Mary. The image of a woman giving birth evokes in many of our minds the Christmas story, especially from Luke chapter 1. And many of you know the gospel story of how Mary, in many ways, represents a faithful remnant of Israel, her her devotion and adoration and her worship of God. And in Luke chapter 1, that beautiful song Mary sings, where Mary is holding on to the promises and word of God. And just as Mary gives birth to a son in Luke chapter 1 and into Christmas story, no sooner is there an adversary out to get and destroy this child, which leads us to our second character, the dragon. Look at verse 3. John writes, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his seven heads ten diadems. Notice again, the dragon is also called a sign, just like the woman. The dragon is red, the color of blood. He has seven heads, seven being a symbol, a number of authority or a completeness. And this idea of having seven heads represents sort of this idea of the dragon having authority. And horns all throughout scripture represent strength and power. And for this dragon to have 10 horns, again, 10 is a number of completeness. 
throughout Scripture represents that this dragon, in a sense, has complete evil, malevolent authority. And at the same time, the, the, the identity, the, the symbol of the dragon is actually, in many ways, more easily discerned because John just tells you who the dragon is in verse 9, if you look down in your Bible. In verse 9, we read, he is the devil, the Satan, the serpent of old. Which takes us again back into the Old Testament, where we find another woman doing battle with a serpent. In that story, the woman Eve is told that there will be enmity or war between her seed and the seed of the serpent. But one day, God promises. Genesis 3.15. One day, God says that there will come from the seed of the woman someone who will crush the head of the serpent. And from then on, the whole Old Testament is pointing forward, looking forward to this coming birth of this son that would come from the line of the woman that would finally and fully defeat evil at its source, the head, which leads to our third character. Verse 5, we read, this woman gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was cut up, caught up to God and to his throne. Notice, this is important, the son is not called a sign. The woman is called a sign. The dragon is called a sign because they point to a reality beyond themselves, but this baby son is the reality himself. He doesn't point to something or someone else. He is the reality. You won't find a literal woman clothed in the sun. You won't find, unless it's in a movie, a dragon with seven heads, but you will find a baby boy. God himself come to us. Now, kids, question for you this morning. Maybe I've kind of already alluded to it, but who is the identity of this son? Shout it out. Jesus, right? Sunday school answer, right? And we actually even know this from the text itself. Verse 5 tells us, John does, that he is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron, which again is an echo back to the Old Testament, Psalm 2, speaking of the messianic king who would rule all the nations. But just like in Psalm 2, there is a conflict, so here in our text, Revelation 12, there is a conflict itself. And that leads me to my second point, what the conflict Reveals. We just looked at what the characters reveal, who they are and what they kind of speak to, but what does this conflict that is happening amongst these characters, what do they reveal? Now, on one level, the conflict reveals that you and I, as God's people, are in a battle. The dragon tries to kill the son the moment that he's born, and does this not remind you of the Christmas story? In Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus is born, King Herod the insecure, megalomaniac Herod orders all the boys two years and younger to be slaughtered. John is very much echoing that story here in Revelation 12, which means Revelation 12 is a Christmas text. It is a text that speaks to the incarnation of Jesus coming into this world and all of what that entails. Eugene Peterson writes helpfully, he says this, this is not the nativity story we grew up with. But it is the nativity story all the same. John is writing so that, the, so that the nativity cannot be sentimentalized into coziness and not domesticated into worldliness. 
See, there's a danger, if I might put it like this, there's a danger that can sometimes happen during this season where we become so accustomed to all of the, the wonderful things that Christmas offers. Trees and lights and presents and Christmas cards and even the stories in Matthew, uh, Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 1 and 2. We get so accustomed to these that it can become in many ways sentimental and all, almost lose its meaning. But John or, or Revelation 12 is really this, this beautiful image given to us to sort of awaken us, to reveal to us, to stir our affections even more to the reality and the beauty of what Christmas is all about. Now, notice what John says, though, in verse 5, that this child was, after he was born, was caught up to God and his throne. He's born, then caught up. Didn't you forget some stuff, John? I mean, like, why collapse the whole story of, like, Jesus is born, and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Why not say the child was born, escaped the dragon's first attempt to kill him, was anointed by the Spirit, taught, healed, suffered and died, and then was raised and ascended? Why skip all of that? Well, there's actually biblical precedent for this brief summary. In Timothy, 1 Timothy, Paul the Apostle writes to Timothy and says, he, Jesus, was revealed in the flesh, and vindicated by the Spirit, born and then taken up to God, or born to be enthroned. And this baby son in Revelation 12, John is telling us, is the victorious king, that this is why this son was born, to rule and to reign, to defeat evil at its source, and to be caught up to God's throne and to rule and reign over all the nations, defeating sin and death and the Satan himself. Six times in this chapter, we're told that the dragon is, quote, thrown down. It's a word that simply means bounced. In fact, you could read it like this, that, that the dragon's just kind of bounced out of heaven, like no big deal. There's just no, no sort of like struggle at all for God to just kick the dragon out. But just because the dragon is bounced does not mean he's not active. Verse 10 tells us that this dragon is the accuser of the brethren. Accuses God's people day and night. And in fact, even in this passage and throughout the totality of Scripture, we know that the dragon, the devil, accuses God's people with deceit and with lies. That this is the trademark of our enemy. Targeting God's people, accusing, deceit, lies. In fact, in Jesus' most in-depth teaching, if you will, on the devil, John chapter 8, Jesus refers to the devil as, quote, the father of lies, who has been lying from the beginning. And this is the way that the enemy works in our world and attempts to influence and sway and bring down God's people. If he can't get to the Son himself, he goes after the people of God whom God loves and accuses and brings lies. And yet, at the same time, verse 12 of Revelation 12 tells us that the dragon knows that his time is short. In many ways, the dragon knows the gospel in a sense. He knows that he's been defeated and he knows that his time is short. 
And so he's on a desperate rampage. Verse 17, towards the end, he goes after the people of God who keep, quote, the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And that Satan again and again attacks God's people through accusations and lies. Did you know that Satan is actually right about some things? Satan's right. You're a sinner. Merry Christmas. (laughs) But that's not the full story if you're in Christ. Satan brings these false accusations and these lies and points out sin in your life. Yes, you are a sinner, but Satan's motivation, Satan's goal is to condemn, God redeems. Satan tears down, God remakes and renews. So on one hand, this passage reveals that yes, there is a conflict, there's a battle, Truth and lies, hope and despair. But ultimately, friends, Revelation 12 reveals the hope and the comfort and the love of God in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 10 with me and following. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for." The accuser of our brothers has been, there it is, thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Notice what John is saying in verse 10 there. The authority of his Christ, his kingdom and his salvation and his power has come. His authority is established in and through this little baby Jesus. In and through the incarnation of God taking on human flesh, this is how God's authority and reign and salvation and power is established. And, verse 11, they have conquered him. Who's the him? The dragon. That yes, Christ has defeated the dragon. Christ is the one who crushes the serpent's head. But those of us who are in Christ, we participate, in a sense, in this victory. We participate in the rule and the reign of Christ as we, verse 11 says, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they have not loved their lives even to death. Now, for the last few minutes here, I just want us to Slow down and meditate on that phrase, they have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. Like, what does that phrase even mean? What is, what is John wanting to communicate there? Well, that image, that idea of a lamb, again, goes back to the Old Testament, specifically the, the book of Exodus, the story of God's delivering and saving his people out of Egypt. And on that first night of Passover, God instructs through Moses to for all the Israelites to, to sacrifice the lamb and to paint the blood on the doorposts. And that through, because of the sacrifice of the lamb, God would pass over, death would pass over God's people. And think about it like this. This idea of the lamb. This weak, vulnerable, not so mighty creature is the image, is the animal that most often gets described and ascribed to Jesus. Behold, John the baptizer says, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. A lamb, as the book of Revelation repeatedly refers to Jesus over and over again. In fact, John, at multiple occasions, will hear Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, this image of strength and of power and of might. Yet, when John turns and sees, when he turns and looks, he sees a lamb on the throne. A lamb who has been slaughtered and sacrificed for the sins of the world. And it reminds us, this lamb, this image of a lamb does, of the vulnerability that God himself entered into. The one who holds everything by the word of his power, the one that through whom and by whom all things have been created, makes himself vulnerable and in a sense weak and takes on human flesh for you and for me. Don't miss the power of what John is saying here. That it's through and only through the Lamb of God that God's people can live in victory. It's only through this baby boy born in Bethlehem that God's people have hope and redemption and live from a place of his strength and his victory. See, friends, at some point, probably either tonight or maybe tomorrow, you'll probably read one of the more traditional Christmas stories from the book of Matthew or the book of Luke. And as you read those stories, we're reminded of these beautiful truths, right, of Jesus, Emmanuel, Matthew chapter 1, God with us. That the God of the universe has drawn near to you and to me in our brokenness, in our vulnerability. Or if you read the Luke story, that on this day in the city of David is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. This is good news of great joy for all people. That the shepherds there in Luke's narrative are invited to rejoice and to celebrate and to be in awe that God, the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, has come to dwell with his people to save and to redeem. And as you read those stories, as you have those more familiar stories in your mind, I also want you to have Revelation 12 in the back of your mind. Knowing that this little baby, Jesus of Nazareth, is the one who has conquered evil and sin. He is the one who has come and is coming again to defeat evil at its source. See, maybe you're here this morning and Christmas is a more difficult time for you. And you're told to rejoice, you're told to put the smile on, but you walk into these doors tempted to just put on the fake smile. May Revelation 12 be a reminder that Jesus enters into a dark and broken world. He does not stand far off, but he comes into the evil and the brokenness that we all experience to have victory over it and to share that victory with you. And maybe you know someone who's going through it this Christmas.
May this text be an encouragement to you that you conquer. You reign and are seated with Christ, to borrow language from Paul, only because of the blood of the Lamb. The vulnerability, the brokenness, the sin, the despair of this world has been and will be fully defeated in and through God coming to his people as a human baby. Friends, this is what Christmas is all about. This is why Luke tells us that we can have great joy. This is good news for all people. Whether you've walked into this room this morning really feeling that sense of joy or whether you walk into this room tired and worn out and broken and just tempted to fake it another Christmas, may you find the person of Jesus drawing near to you in your brokenness, not the fake performance that you might be tempted to give. And allow Jesus to enter into that broken place, that place where the dragon has done its work, and know that we have hope, that there's healing, that there's life only in the person of Jesus. And so as God's people, we are a people oriented, yes, looking back to the first coming of Jesus, but we're also a people future-oriented, looking with hope and expectation to that day as the book of Revelation is going to continue to unfold, where that dragon is cast out into the pit forever and ever. Friends, this is what Jesus has come to do. This is what Christmas is all about. May this image fuel your worship and devotion to him this Christmas. So, Father, we ask. We ask that by your spirit you would expand our capacity and our imaginations to see and behold you for who you truly are. Give us hearts and minds and wills that Long for the fullness of your redemption. Give us a vision of Jesus high and lifted up and help us to see Jesus near to us in our brokenness and in our pain. So God, we ask, by your Holy Spirit, would you do this work in each of us? In the difficulty and the pain and the, the beauty and the hope, fill us with joy. Your birth, your arrival is good news of great joy. So wherever we find ourselves this morning, Holy Spirit, would you, would you help us to have that joy in you? Amen.